Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome to the Over the Cap podcast. It is July 3rd, 2022, and this is Jason Fitzgerald. You can find me on Twitter at Jason underscore OTC, uh, or you can email me, Jason at OverTheCap.com. As usual, we are back with Nelly this week. Nelly, anything? No, Nelly's snacking right now. Um, We'll see what Nelly's got to say a little bit later on. So Nelly the Bunny is back, so I am back in my usual recording spot. So I am... Recovered, as far as I know, from all that COVID ordeal from a couple of weeks ago. Uh, It was, you know, just really tiring. Um, You know, I mentioned the last time when I recorded that it was like, you know, you had aches and pains. So, you know, after the the initial period, I kind of went back out and started, you know, getting back to to life as much as you could. Um, You know, wearing the mask and everything. So I wasn't doing my work, you know, no workouts or anything like that. But it was like middle of the day. I was just tired, like just no energy. Um, kind of had some insomnia. It's weird. It's like you had no energy at all. But when it came to sleeping, it's hard to really like get a good sleep. Like I was just like, ah, oh, I wish I could just get a good sleep. And during the night, it was just like toss and turn. And, you know, you fall asleep for a little bit and you're like half asleep, half awake. And, it lingered beyond the 10 days. So we ended up going, I said we were taking a family trip. So I ended up going to uh, Disney for a couple of days. So luckily the kids didn't catch it. So we were able to keep the trip. Uh, I was right past the 10 day mark when we flew to Florida and we, we only stayed for three nights. So it was a, it was a quick trip in and out. Um, but even those first two days when we were there, I was exhausted and it wasn't the exhausted from walking around Disney. It was just being exhausted. Um, so that that was my little experience with it. On on uh, the third day, um, so that would have been day 14, I think, uh, based on how they do it. You know, 15 days past your test, 14 days, if you count that as days, it will, what, however it works out to be. Um that was like the first day we went to Epcot that day. If anyone goes to Disney, you know, Epcot's the one. I, I think I threw a picture up there where uh, the dad shoes and the dad shoes were in full effect uh, this the, these last couple of days. But, um, you know, uh, that that day I was able to get through the whole day uh, really without being tired, just without anything. But the two days before that were a little bit tough, but it, it was a good trip. We stayed at uh, Animal Kingdom. If you have little kids, I would recommend it we never really stayed there before we were there for a night once before uh but this time uh, we did splurge and get the the studio room where you can uh see the savannah and the kids really like that you know my daughter's 12 she still thought it was great uh, my son thought it was wonderful with the giraffes walking around and anything else so uh you know if you can go and you can um afford that i would i would go for it it was a uh it was pretty cool. Animal Kingdom's a little out of the way, uh, but it's a really nice resort. Uh, so if if your thing is to stay at some of those nicer places, you're going for a quick trip or you want a split stay or um, you're interested in that, the animal stuff is really cool um, there if you, you get those rooms. Restaurants are pretty good there too. Um, so we, we enjoyed the trip. It, it was quick. Um, you know, they, we got a lot of rain so we we, uh, we didn't get to do as much on the first day, which was good because the little bit we did, like I said, I was exhausted. Uh, second day, we didn't do any park trips. We just did like a little bit of a resort day and went to Disney Springs for a little bit. And once again, I was pretty exhausted <laughs> and uh, laid down for a little bit. And then they had a 
one of the water parks had a party that night. And that was a lot of fun. Uh, the kids really enjoyed that. So they had a good time doing that. And then we did Epcot. And then the, on the day we left, we went to Hollywood Studios. So uh, it was an enjoyable trip. So it was uh, it was nice to get away for a couple of days, even though it wasn't very long. We'll go back again uh, this winter. Um, we're going to go. So anyway, that's my uh, my personal news and personal little updates here. Uh, beer of the night tonight, Cape May IPA. Uh, so we've got the Cape May IPA for the July 4th weekend. And uh, we'll have maybe one or two more of these uh, during the course of the podcast. We'll see how it goes. Um, I know I got a, a good amount of questions uh, already, I think, through Twitter and email this week. So uh, we'll get into it. So I, I think the first thing that I wanted to do, really, there's just two things I think to talk about this week. Um, one of them really deals with what I wanted. The main thing I wanted to do was positional valuation. The other one's Deshaun Watson. I'll, I'll do Deshaun Watson afterwards. Um, so this week... I don't remember really what brought it up. Uh, well, actually, I shouldn't say that. I know what brought it up was Terry McLaurin signed an extension that I don't have the full details on it yet, but I believe it's $23 million a year. Um, the guarantee was out there already. Let me see what that number was. Yeah, 34-6 full, 53-1-5 um, injury protection, 28 signing bonus. You know, it's a big deal. Uh, you know, McLaurin is a good player. This deal will make him the, let's see where he would be. Maybe the fourth highest paid player at the position. Let's see. Uh, you've got Hill, Adams, Hopkins, Cut. Oh, I forgot about AJ Brown. Eh, no, you know, you'd be, you'd be, I'd have to think of where Adams is. Adams is probably at like 22 real. Uh, so he'd be behind Hill, Cup, AJ Brown, and Diggs, and way above DJ Moore, who's at 20. So McLaurin gets there. Uh, he's been, had a really solid career, obviously. Um, you know, almost a thousand yards as a rookie. 1,100 yards in 2020, uh, 1050 last year. He's basically playing with kind of garbagey quarterbacks. So he's one of these players who's been kind of quarterback proof. But, uh, you know, I think before this offseason began, you would not have expected Terry McLaurin to be earning $23 million a year. Um, I, I think you, you probably would have expected him originally. I, I think you would have looked at him and you probably would have put him in that group that was, um, you know, kind of the, the locket group, uh, you know, that 17, 18 kind of million a year range. Um, I think that's probably where he would have gone. I, I don't think he would have been lower. He, he wouldn't have fallen down into the 15s. But I think he would have been in that, you know, 16, 17, 18 kind of range. And the way things went as the season progressed, um, you know, those numbers went up and up and up uh, where you had more getting past 20. You had Diggs at 24, A.J. Brown hitting 25, uh, Cup getting to 26-7. And you had Hill, who's 30 on a piece of paper, 25 in reality. Uh, Adams, I think at 22 in reality, might be 23. So the market itself shifted enough for his numbers to go way up there. 
um, you know, probably an extra four or five million dollars a year by letting the market play out. And for, you know, it, it's one thing, you know, for just uh, just as a, a, a side comment, and I know we get a lot of agents and stuff who listen to this. There's no reason to rush into a deal. And this is a good reason why it's not worthwhile sometimes to rush into a contract by letting free agency play out instead of rushing into an extension in February or March, he let the market completely shift. You know, th- these numbers just rose and rose and rose. You know, I- I'll use DJ Moore as an example here. So DJ Moore, oops, let's bring him up. So DJ Moore signs an extension on March 20th. Uh, that was when it was officially filed. So it was probably agreed to a day or two before that. He was under contract for 11.16. There was really no rush to it. Um, you know, if, if you look at Moore's numbers here, you know, Moore has been, um, you know, in every way, shape, or form, an equivalent or better player than McLaurin. Uh, you know, 788 is a rookie, 1175, 1193, 1157. Also playing with pretty much garbage quarterbacks. Um, you know, he, he's got really good numbers and he's got a first round draft grade versus a third round draft grade. But he gets in before all the lunacy begins. So he signs for 20.7. And, you know, you, you have, um, Sorry, uh, <laughs> I got distracted by a text here. Um, you know, and you have McLaurin coming in at 23. So McLaurin's three-year extension is going to pay him 69. DJ Moore's is going to earn 62, a little under 62. So you have to wonder how different would things have been for DJ Moore if they just sat on the contract and said to Carolina, we want to let free agency play out. You know, we want to see how some of these other extensions come down, right? A.J. Brown wants contract. Debo Samuel wants contract. D.K. Metcalf wants a contract. There is no reason to rush into a contract. Really, to be honest, there is no reason for a player to sign an extension unless you're blown away by an offer. Uh, or, you know, if you have multiple years remaining on your contract, that's different. When you've only got one year remaining on your contract, you should not be signing a contract extension, again, unless blown away by a number. I'd consider the McLaurin number to be blown away. I'd consider A.J. Brown pretty much a blow-away number. Um, you shouldn't sign those contracts really until after the franchise period. Now, I'm not sure when the... Um, it, it, I don't even remember if there's any receivers still on the tag right now. I, I don't think there are um, because Godwin signed his extension at 20. So I think um, I think he and Adams were the only two. But in general, you certainly shouldn't sign until after the franchise period. And really, you can push it all the way up to the start of training camp. If you're worried about the injury stuff at that point, then you do a deal. But you're going to let these other teams do contracts and you're going to let the market expand. So I, I think McLaurin did a really good job by waiting this out and letting a lot of these other deals come down 
that really pulled the market up. And what I wanted to get into here was uh, Adam Harstead brought up the kind of the, the way the market's gone at wide receiver. And, you know, he wondered how, you know, how this compared with other positions and, um, you know, just how this was kind of crazy with some of the numbers we've seen thrown around. So I said, oh, you know, I, I can pull up that pretty easy. Uh, we track some of that stuff. So I wanted to do kind of a, a little segment here on positional values in the NFL and growth rates and how these things kind of happen, but kind of with a focus on wide receiver. And, you know, I, I find wide receivers to be fascinating because it's not a position that's really gotten a lot of attention for a couple of years now. Remember, back in 2015-ish, um, I might have the year wrong, you had some really good players in Demarius Thomas and Des Bryant get franchise tagged. And they got pinched into contracts that really slowed the wide receiver position down um, in terms of growth. And if we look at the wide receiver position, I'm just going to look at your top 10 contracts here. I'll get to top 20 in a little bit. Um, the growth on this has not been very good. So I went back to the beginning of o OTC. Uh, so starting with 2013 as our baseline, 2014, the top 10 salaries uh, average value only rose by a half percent. From 2014 to 2015, they rose by 12.2%. They dropped in 2016 by 1.4. They increased uh, by 9.8% in 2017. 2018, it was an increase of 11.5. 2019, an increase in 9.2. 2020, an increase in 12.6. And then just a half percent increase last year. And now we're already not including the McLaurin contract at about 23 so obviously this this is like a market correction um, in terms of growth. You know, it, this is kind of definitely the case. Um, I'm just seeing where this ranks. If we don't include last year, let's see. Let me see where they ranked. So, yeah, prior to last year, uh, prior to this year, prior to this offseason, wide receiver was a average or below average growth position since 2013. Uh, you had right tackle, 13.4%, average growth. Uh, quarterback was 8.9, interior defensive line 8.5, safety 8.3, left tackle 8.3, guard 8.2, Center seven nine, linebacker seven seven, edge about seven percent, wide receiver six nine, uh, tight end corner running back, kicker long snappers and punters. Um, so there was there was really not a lot of growth, and for the most part, it was the front end of those years that was really poor. Um, you know, where, where you just didn't see much anything. And then we started to see some movement in the last couple of years. And it kind of got me to thinking a little bit on it. Like, what what really changed here? And I, I think in hindsight, you know, and I, I mentioned this in the thread on it. Um, I think it's the Kenny Galladay contract. You know, Kenny Galladay is a player who did have the thousand yard seasons, 
But he came off a year where he was injured, and then there were questions about how injured he really was or if he was just trying to protect his body for free agency. He only played in like four or five games, uh, you know, probably 400 yards or something like that. Um, didn't play a lot. And the market pulled back. There, there was no action in free agency. Like I mentioned, if you look at the top 10 contracts um, from 2020 to 2021, there was only a half percent increase. And that half percent was probably because of Galladay uh, kind of jumping into the mix. So there was really nothing at all. And somehow at the end period, the, the ending of free agency, um, his agency, that's Athletes First, went in there with the Giants and they got themselves a fantastic contract. And, you know, he's... he's third round pick it's not like he's got i think he's a third round pick right it's not like he's got that big uh top 10 first round pedigree or whatever it was you know he, do, he doesn't have any of that so he's i think he's a terrific player you know he sucked last year but uh <laughs> you know it, it's a it, it's a surprising when you look at what happened with the market it's a surprising number and when you look at the draft status for him when you look at the injury from the prior year, when you look at some of those question marks around him, when you look at the market as a whole, this to me was probably a wake-up call that maybe there are a couple of teams that are going to push for more. And it happened this offseason, first with Mike Williams, who got to 20. Now, you can argue why he got to 20. You know, the, the Chargers situation is such that you've got this window with this young, terrific quarterback. Just do what you can to keep your receivers there because you've got an older receiver in Allen. At any minute, it could stop. Um, you already have Williams. Your prime years with Herbert are going to be this year and next year. And I don't mean that that's all you can win with him. I just mean... This is your financial prime with him. Even if you extend him after this year, your financial prime with him is these next two years. So you can't go back to the drawing board and have to draft and develop a receiver while promoting a, I don't even know who's still on their team. Is Jalen Guyton still on their team? Um, I don't remember if he was a free agent this year. I, I don't even remember. Um, no, it's exclusive rights. So, I mean, you'd, you don't want to do that. So e even if you're not crazy about spending the 20, you just you do it because it makes sense within the construct of your team. Yeah, I would say something different if they didn't have Mike Williams on the team already playing with him and you go out and you spend 20 on him. That to me is a little crazy. You have no idea if there's any chemistry. You don't know how he's going to fit in with your team. That probably doesn't make a lot of sense. But I, I think you can make some arguments as to... Um, why they did the deal they did. The Christian Kirk deal at 18 was the crazy one, right? Never a thousand yard season, um, second round draft grade, I think. It's a pure build off Galladay. Uh, 18 a year, he gets the 37 injury versus 40 for Galladay, he gets the 37 full, 20 to sign, 22 5 first year, 55 5 over three. He Basically beats out Galladay in every metric except for the injury guarantee. And, you know, the, their total values end up the same. 
And then you've got the, the Tyreek Hill thing, which you know basically moves the market to like 24, 25, depending on how you want to look at it. And everybody just settles in after that. You know, Diggs is 24. A.J. Brown comes in at 25. That's also like a 23, um, the A.J. Brown deal. It's a three-year cash of 69. So really that's also a 23 with that they second year, uh, fourth year to bump up the number. So, you know, it, it's a it's a strange position. Um and you can see that teams were punting on some of these players. Uh, you know, Hopkins was a trade. Adams was sort of a trade. Hill was a trade. Um, A.J. Brown was a trade. So you, you see this movement. These guys aren't getting a free agency, but you're seeing this movement in the trade market. And, you know, this is one of those things what, you know, I, I, I've kind of considered a little bit when I look at receivers and I, I look at where they were in the past, and, and I look at some of the reasons why um, teams have been hesitant to pay for them. And I think some of this, and I, I know this is off the off the topic of positional values here, but I, I think with this position in particular, I think one of the issues is we have offenses in the NFL that are geared towards lots and lots of participation, right? We we have games where Tyreek Hill wrecks a game. We have games where Tyreek Hill doesn't wreck a game. I can look at someone like Justin Jefferson and say, man, this guy should be being treated like he's Calvin Johnson. But you'll see, they, they'll throw their couple of you know big passes to him. He could have a ridiculous first quarter and then the Vikings will be like, no, we're going to go do something else. And I think we have these offenses that are much better designed maybe than in the past, but sometimes, instead of taking a look at the talent that you might have, I think some of the coaching gets away from that and kind of just is like, well, yeah, they're talented, but they're going to fit in with what we do rather than finding ways to um, exploit the defenses even further by really concentrating on these guys. You know, the the Rams last year clearly concentrated on getting the ball to Cooper Cup. He had a ridiculous season. Now, Stafford did come from a bunch of teams where his best success was playing with a true alpha wide receiver in Calvin Johnson that was just a, a dominant, you know, player. And he was kind of used to that kind of system. And give the Rams credit, they leaned into it. When Cup was playing great, they didn't pull away and be like, well, you know, we got to get more targets for Robert Woods before he got hurt. And we got to get Higby more involved and we got to get this guy. It was just this guy's playing phenomenal this year. Just ride it out. Just keep calling his number. But I think as we moved into more of these kind of multifaceted offenses where you have a wide receiver one, but there's not a lot of separation between wide receiver one and wide receiver two. And, you know, in an ideal world, I would guess the offensive coordinator probably looks at his system and says, you know, I'd like to have a, a thousand yard receiver, 900 yard receiver. I want my wide receiver three to be at like 600, 700 yards. Uh, I want my tight end to be probably around 700 yards. I'd like my running backs to be four or five. Um, you know, and then I'll have some other receivers, you know, maybe I'll get a guy at 300 yards. I'll get another one at 150, 200. Like I, I've got this system where I need to spread the ball around. And there are certain players who I think are good enough to where you can maybe pull away from that. 
you know, there's more damage that can be done targeting those Jefferson types than, you know, targeting the, the third or fourth on a team. You know, even if that third or fourth is productive at times, um, you know, or, you know, in Minnesota's case, it might be, you know, getting the ball in some way, shape or form to Dalvin Cook. There's probably more productivity that can come uh, from getting the ball to those other players. You know, Seattle, I think, was a, a team that did very poor with that when it came, you know, Jimmy Graham. When Jimmy Graham went there years and years and years ago, he was a terrific receiver in New Orleans because New Orleans kind of developed a system that said, okay, this guy's an athletic freak. You know, you, you line him up wide and you use him all over the field. When you looked at the numbers in Seattle where they dropped off dramatically, when Jimmy Graham was still in his prime, not not the not the, the Bears version or the Packers version, when he was still in his prime, if you looked at what he did in Seattle, he was still pretty much as efficient as he was in New Orleans. But Seattle was not utilizing him in the situations New Orleans was. They were utilizing him more in the role of what you would expect from a above average tight end. And you didn't get the maximum production you could have gotten from him because of the way you you wanted to run your offense. And I think this is kind of a league-wide thing at this point. So I, I went to uh, Pro Football Reference, their stat head site, and just wanted to pull up the numbers here. Um, I wanted to look at seasons that were 1,000-yard uh, seasons by receivers. So let me pull up those numbers here. So what I wanted to do was look at the players around the league who have had at least 1,000 yards in a season. And, you know, it, it's pretty consistent. Um, I, I went back to 1994. It's pretty consistent. The, the number of players um, that have it, you know, there, there's some exceptions to that. And I think there's certain players that don't have as much, um, you know, if you start using like 1,200 yards or something like that. But 1,000 yards has been traditional, what people look at as a kind of a barometer. But I wanted to look at the impact of the receivers by looking at what percentage they they made up of all the receiving yards, or I'm sorry, all the all the passing yards in a given year. So we're going to include running backs and tight ends because that's that's part of the passing game. So I looked at um, you know it did each individual season here, and starting in 1994, and I just wanted to do five year kind of moving averages. So starting in 1998, so 94, 95, 96, 97, and 98, the average, uh, the 1,000-yard receivers in the league made up on average about 22% of all receiving yards. And that was very steady for the next couple of years, 22%, 23, 22, 23, 24, 23, 22, 22. And then we start to get into this period where the impact of the wide receiver kind of drops. And, and you know, this is where you start taking into account where the, the rules changes occurred, uh, which I think was the 2004 season, 2005-ish time. And we start to see this decline, 21%, uh, 20.3, 21, 21, 
In 2010, we get down to 19.5. We're at 18.9, 18.7, 18.9, 19, 20.1, 20.7. And the last couple of years, again, well, I'm talking about over a you know five-year average. We, we've had some seasons where there's been bounce backs of this. 19.4, So again, we, we've seen some bounce backs. You know, 2021 uh, was actually 21%. 2019 was 23%. But th- there's no consistency in it. Um, it's been like you, you've had a couple of years where you've got a couple guys getting over 1,000, and that's, that's pulling those numbers up um, a little bit. But more often than not, you don't have the guys getting to that 1,000-yard mark. And that's what we've seen really since 2017. Uh, you had 13 players in 2017, 18 in 2018. Then you had the big jump in 2019, back down to 16 in 2020. And it, it just leads to the the kind of inconsistency that you see in the NFL. But it, it's been a pretty steady decline in terms of the impact as a percentage of total offense that the quote-unquote star wide receivers make on a league-wide basis in the NFL. And I think this is one of the reasons maybe why we've gotten to this point where you do see players kind of being deemed expendable where a generation ago, they never would have been. You know, you you never would have seen an A.J. Brown traded. He would have been tagged. You never would have seen a Tyreek Hill traded. They would have made him play out his contract and then probably tagged him. Um, you know, you, you wouldn't have seen... Green Bay just willingly say, ah, you can go to Oakland um, or Las Vegas. You know, they, they would have demanded more compensation to to let him go. Um, I, I think this is more teams looking at this and saying, it's our offense and our quarterbacks that dictate the success, not so much the wide receiver. And you've got these other teams then who don't have quarterbacks that are really worth paying. Uh, or they're on rookie contracts, and that's where those big contracts kind of are. So, you know, if, if you look at the league, you've got Tyreek Hill in Miami, where you've got a rookie. You've Adams with the Raiders, that's a lot of money for Carr. You have Hopkins with the Cardinals, that's a rookie. You have Cup with the Rams, that's a lot of money with the two there. A.J. Brown is with a rookie. Uh, Diggs is with someone who's just kind of coming off that rookie contract, but we'll, you know, you consider that there. DJ Moore is playing with a no-money quarterback. Keenan Allen and Mike Williams are no-money quarterbacks. Um, Godwin is obviously with somebody who's making a bunch. Amari Cooper was traded for originally when they had still kind of a lower-money, mid-tier level quarterback. Brandon Cooks is with a no-money no, uh, no quarterback. Michael Thomas was signed when they had an expensive quarterback. Um, so you could probably consider him that way. Christian Kirk is with a no-money quarterback. Galladay is with a no-money quarterback. Lockett is with someone who did make money. Evans was with a no-money quarterback when he signed his deal. Uh, Robert Woods was traded to the Titans, uh, but that was mid-level. That that was probably high. I'm trying to remember when he signed his extension, uh, if that was a higher-level number there or not. Um, You know, so as you look at those numbers... It, we're definitely leaning into a system where it's going to be the, the teams primarily that have the non-quarterback, you know, the, the question mark quarterback that are willing to pay up trying to get the talent around the player. Whereas those with the expensive and established players, I think 
move away from this thinking, again, it's the offense and the quarterback that dictates the whole thing. Um, But anyway, when you get back into the positional values, what kind of surprised me a little bit, I was like, okay, yeah, you know, I kind of agree. This has been a kind of a wild year. Um, I kind of figured that this was one of the bigger seasons that we've had. In reality, it's not. Um, I mean, it, it's high. I, I shouldn't say that it's not. Um, but it's uh, one, two, three, four, five. It's the sixth since 2013 in terms of percentage of growth. Um, your top position that increased uh, was right tackle in 2019. I want to make sure I have that year right. Let me see here. Because that year doesn't sound right to me. Yeah, uh, no, that was 2019. Was that the, the brown year? Let me just make sure I have the, the numbers right. That might have been the Trent Brown, Lane Johnson year. Yeah. So that number is a kind of out there. It's not really legitimate. Um, because basically those were left tackles being paid that way. Uh, but in 2019, you had linebacker at 29.5. That was the, the C.J. Mosley, uh, Quan Alexander, um, Anthony Barr group. That was Those are off-ball linebackers. I'm not talking about edge rushers. Uh, it just saw a big jump that year. Running back in 2018, 27% increase. Left tackle, 26% increase in 2020. Running back in 2020 was a 23.4% increase. Wide receiver, 23.1% this year so far. So that's going to move into the top five. It's going to jump running back by the end of the season. And then you had guard at 23% in 2017. Those are the only positions where the top 10 has increased by at least 20% in any given year. And I think the, the thing that's important to kind of understand about that is that tells you that this hyper period of growth dies, right? We, we don't see it go consistently because notice uh, what I'm saying, these over 20s, running back is the only position that shows up there twice. And I think part of the reason for that, let me just take a look at running backs here. Um. It was pretty stagnant. I, I was going to say it might be because a uh, player or two was cut. You had a couple players drop it out and then drop back in. Um, you know, I, I think it was just a it was just a factor of you went from nothing to something, and then you had a couple more players that were able to build off those top contracts two years later, which is kind of a rarity um, in the league. But at other positions. We don't see that. So if you look, I'm just going to go in order of how I have them. So this is going to be alphabetical order for the, the way that I, I have them here. Um, center, the max growth was 15.8%. You had two years in a row where you went 13, 3, 15, 8. So that was your growth. Then it was just a dud. 3, 7, 9, 9, 3, 4, 13, 9, 3, 4. Um, you know, over the last five years, it's only increased by 20.5%. So, you know, that, that's how that one has gone. Cornerback, 
13 9, no change, 12 5, 6 8, uh, lost 1 4, 3.2, 14 7, 3.34, 10.8%. So your max growth at that position in any given year, only 14.7%. Um, you know, last five years, about 35%. Edge rusher declined in 2014. Barely any growth 2015, barely any growth 2016. 2017 sees a 17% spike followed by 11% spike back down to eight. You saw a 10 jump, five, three, then a decline this past year. So again, we're not seeing these massive growth spurts continue year after year after year. Guard, a drop of 8%, gain of 1.5, gain of 19, gain of 23. So this was one of the rare positions where you saw two big years in a row. So guard grew 19, 23, 11, and then it's been nothing since then. 3%, 9%, 7%, negative 5%. Um, interior defensive line, 11%, 18%, 13%, 9, 2, 0, 11.3, 4, and 4, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, you know, so on and so forth. When you look at total since 2013, biggest growth has been right tackle, uh, about 144%. Quarterback is 121%. Wide receiver is 108, and it's all in the last couple of years. Interior defensive line, 97 Safety, 97. Let's see. Uh, what is the, what position is here? Left tackle is 92. Center is 87. Corner is 83. Tight end is 78. Guard, 73. Edge, 69. Uh, linebacker, 64. Kickers, 39%. Running backs, 37%. Long snapper, 17%. And punter, the one position that has really declined, it's down 7% since 2013 uh, in terms of your average salaries. They they haven't gone anywhere um, at that position. Now, if you're curious about it, the salary cap was $123 million in 2013. This year, it's 2082. So your salary cap growth over that time has been about 69%. So anyone under 69 has underperformed the cap. So that's edge, linebacker, kicker, running back, long snapper, punter. In reality, those numbers, you know, should be, the the number for the cap should be higher because the one thing that we can see with this is COVID has not had any impact on the the higher level contracts around the NFL. Um, COVID ripped out certain veteran players from the NFL. It didn't rip out top talent. It didn't decrease the growth in top talent. So I, I think if we didn't have COVID, we'd probably be looking at a salary cap this year, um, probably about two twenty. So about a 79% growth. So you can also throw tight end and guard into positions that have underperformed and corner is just kind of there. 
you know, positions that have been last five years growth, right tackle, quarterback, wide receiver, tight end has been 50% growth, safety has been 47. So those are two positions that are doing better right now after years of doing poorly. Uh, left tackle 44, corner 35, linebacker 35, running backs 32, edge 25, um, centers only 20, interior defensive line 20, long snapper 14, guard 14, kickers 12, punters, they still losing. Um, you know, so now I, I'd expect interior defensive line to be jumping because Aaron Donald was your block on the market. And that's changed now, so you can justify it. But the other thing that I looked at here was the top 20 contracts. So let's not look at the top 10. Let's look at the top 20. So here, um, you know, our, our, our growths are going to be kind of the same, you know, where, where we, you know, look at some of the stuff. But... Um, you know, if you look at the the top positions, the top years that we had, we had guard at twenty eight percent in twenty seventeen, uh, right tackle at twenty eight percent in twenty eighteen, left tackle twenty six percent in twenty nineteen, center twenty five at twenty eighteen, uh, running back at twenty two in twenty nineteen, linebackers at twenty two, right tackles at twenty one nine, kicker twenty point two percent in twenty eighteen. Guard had a 20.1% in 2016, center a 20% in 2017, and, um, you know, our right tackle, uh, I'm sorry, our wide receivers this year are 19-3. Uh, that'll probably jump up to about 20. So th those numbers are increasing. But the thing that I found interesting was when I started looking at the, um, the growth on the, those high growth positions, Really, what we we are looking at, I think, more often than not, and this is one of the reasons we were blindsided with wide receiver, but I think more often than not, if you look at the back end of the market, you can get a better idea as to when these numbers are going to rise. So if you look, for example, at right tackle, the year where they had the 39% um, jump, the year before that, the top 20 contracts jumped by 28%. So what that tells me is there was enough of a fundamental shift between 11 and 20 that gave a lot of reason for certain players to get extended and push for more and more and more money. Linebacker, the year they jumped 29%, well... In, 28, in 2018, the top 20 contracts overall jumped 22%. So again, it's it's almost like a leading indicator of what's going to go on. Um, if you look at running back in 2020, it was in 2019, you saw the running backs jump in the, the back end of the market, or the, the back of the top end of the market, they jumped 22%. So, you know, while the, the 2018 jump for running backs was indicated by nothing, the 2021, you probably saw it by those back-end contracts jumping up. When left tackle increased by 27%, uh, give or take a little bit, in 2020, well, what happened to left tackle in 2019? It jumped 26% um, in the top 20 contracts. 
when we look at guard at 2017, where they jumped 23%, the prior year, they jumped 20% in the top 20 contracts. So really, other than the one year at running back and the one year at wide receiver, I think what we can start to kind of look at is if we look at the, the positions on the back end, what are the positions that are really moving forward uh, in that kind of top 20 range? And, you know, take a look at that and say, you know, next year, maybe that should be an indicator for us at the top of the market if, 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 and that, that's a, always a big thing, um, you know, if the top of the market also didn't rise along with it. So where I look at wide receiver and say, well, you know, they jumped 19.3% overall. Well, they also had their big jump this year. So I, I don't think that you're going to see the two in a row. You know, you, your next big jump this year is corner at 11. So there might be some slight indication that there, there could be another increase towards the top of the corner market. Um, you know, none of the other positions really show that this year. Uh, the other positions are all below 10. Um, you know, and you have a couple positions in negative territory, edge, center, guard, punter, linebacker, right tackle. So th those are positions right now where um, the market is probably steadied out. And, you know, it, it's going to take a special type of player to probably push that market forward um, or a special couple players to push that forward um, from where it's at. But I think there's definitely something we can learn from that when we do contract projections where maybe we do need to pay a little bit more attention. And like I said, it would not have helped us at all with wide receiver this year. But I, I think maybe um, this is one of those things where if, you, if we start to look a little closer at some of the other numbers, and typically when I, when I do these in uh, consulting kind of work, Usually what I'll do is I'll look at the top five or top 10. Um, we'll look through 11 through 20. Uh, we'll look at 21 through 32. And we'll break down the, the kind of ebbs and flows in the last five or six years at each position, um, you know, to see where they go. But this was the first time I really started to look at, you know, kind of a, you know, leading and lagging kind of indicators um, and seeing what impact that might have overall on the contracts in the NFL. And I, I think from looking at it, ultimately, I would definitely say that if we can find positions where that growth in the top 20 is 20%, you know, or close to it, and the top 10 has not increased accordingly, I think we can start to say that, you know what, this is a position where next year, we really have to look at it a lot closer because what's happening is we have a lot of these lesser players and they're really jumping up in value. And as those lesser players jump up in value, it makes those good players, you know, like the Mike Evans of the world on a $16 million contract seem completely obsolete. And I think that's, something that I should be focusing on more, anyone that talks about contracts probably should be focusing on more is a little bit what's happening at that back end of the market versus just the top end of the market.
you know, or what's happening to our market overall? And, um, you know, what does that mean for the future? And so I I think there's some cool stuff there that we can kind of learn from. But I do think wide receiver is going to be fascinating because, again, when I look at those numbers and I I look at the the way the production has declined uh, in terms of your your top targets, um, I think that definitely kind of puts out there the fact because I can't believe when I I look at some of these guys in the league – I can't believe that we don't have players that can dominate a league the way that, um, you know, Randy Moss did or Calvin Johnson did or Larry Fitzgerald did or Terrell Owens did. You know, all these number of players who were just consistently terrific and so much better than everyone else. You know, obviously Jerry Rice, that's that's going way back. Um, you know, so I, I just think that we're, we're kind of missing out on some of the production from some of these better players but i i think because of the the way that we've become so system oriented and sometimes we we don't want to bend those systems when we get the great talent it's like our goal in the draft is to to make sure we get good talent but then when we get even better than good sometimes maybe we still want to treat it just as good talent um, I don't know. I, I think there could be a lot more productivity that's out there. And I'm not saying, because I know Tyreek Hill was upset with his usage. Um, I'm not saying that, you know, maybe they would have been better off utilizing him more. Um, and may, maybe, maybe there is some truth to that. Uh, <coughs> he, he's a little, little bit of a boomer busty type, but, um, you know, now he's going to a complete unknown where, you know, your projection is that he's going to lift Tua, who's also entering his third year and should hit his peak at this point. You know, this should be, you know, this is kind of your put up or shut up season. Um, but there's no guarantee on that. Uh, he made some crazy statement, I think, this week. I think it was on PFF. I think I saw it that... Uh, his relationship is going to be like Dennis Rodman and Carmen Electra. Uh, maybe he's a little too young to remember that. That That's a pretty short-lived romance, whirlwind romance. Um, maybe two years that lasted. So uh, I, I I don't know exactly what that was to mean. Um, but yeah, I, I think that is, uh, that's going to be something in the NFL to, to really look forward to. That you're going to see these teams with these young cheap quarterbacks or mid-grade quarterbacks pay up at wide receiver while all these other teams look at it more as a byproduct of the system and byproduct of their quarterback and just say you know we can start to slot players in there you know the way the chiefs are looking at it and saying all right you know for this year we're going to see what we can do with valdez scantling now he's a lot cheaper, and we think we can get maybe not the same production, but a somewhat similar level of production, and we'll spread the ball around a little more to make up for that loss of Hill, and we'll kind of go from there. Now, I don't know if it's going to work or not, but I, I can see the logic in that, and I can see the logic in what the Dolphins are kind of doing, too. Um 
but for the Dolphins, for it to make sense, they have to u- they do have to utilize him more. They they do have to tailor an offense to feature him more, um, versus just making him another receiver in the system. So anyway, I think it's definitely something that we can all learn from, uh, myself included, with uh, the way that we look at certain things with contracts in the future. Um, I think that'll be something good. Uh, Deshaun Watson. So hearings going on, whatever. I am so sick of the Deshaun Watson stuff, but you know, it's one of those things that we got to talk about. Um, so this week, Pro Football Talk was... I think their latest one is now, well, you know, they can suspend him for like six games or eight games. And then I think it was eight games and then just say, well, he missed all last season. So really it's 25 and then just find him 10 million. Ay, ay, ay. Um, so anyway, you know, I, I think they can find him whatever they want. It, it would look pretty odd if you find him exactly what his salary was the year before, but... I do think that they, they can um, find him for whatever they want. We've run out of Cape May IPAs, so we're going to two roads, uh, Road to Ruin IPAs that we've got here. Uh, so I, I don't think the conduct policies of the CBA actually puts a limit on fines. So that that's one of the things that you, you can do. Um, I know I've mentioned it before on this. I do believe if the NFL goes overboard with a fine, and I'm not I'm overboard with a suspension. I'm not saying there's anything that should be overboard. You know, I kind of said that before, um, which is not the quote unquote indefinite suspension kind of route. Um, you know, by overboard, I mean, you know, just they, they say it's a full season, then he's back next year. Indefinite is a different category. Um I do think that they would file an appeal or grievance or whatever and basically say that, you know, the Texans locked us down. You know, the, the Texans didn't let us play last year. Yeah, we said we didn't want to be in Houston, but let's be real. A lot of players say they don't want to be somewhere and they do play football. We didn't get a chance to play football. They say go away. So that was our punishment. We took the punishment last year. So I, I do think that that is part of a process that could kind of come into place. But... I wanted to look at the personal conduct policy itself. And, you know, I thought this was kind of interesting. So the discipline that they give in here, um, let me just pull up, make sure I'm in the right spot. Okay, so with regards to violations of the policy that involve criminal assault or battery, domestic violence, uh, sexual assault, this is what applies to him, involving physical force or committed against someone incapable of giving, giving consent, a first violation will subject the violator to a baseline suspension without pay of six games with possible upward or downward adjustments based on aggregating or mitigating factors. The presence of possible aggregating factors may warrant a longer suspension. Aggregated factors include, but are not limited to, a prior violation of the policy, similar misconduct before joining the NFL, violence involving a weapon, choking, repeated striking, or when an act is committed against a particularly vulnerable person, such such as a child, a pregnant woman, or an elderly person, or where the act is committed in the presence of a child. Possible mitigating factors include prompt acceptance of responsibility and cooperation with any league investigation, 
voluntary engagement with appropriate clinical resources and demonstrating compliance with any recommended program of counseling and other, other therapeutic intervention, and voluntary restitution with the victim. So there's some interesting things here. Um, when you look at the aggregating factors that we have here, prior violation of the policy doesn't apply. Similar misconduct before joining the NFL. I don't believe anything applies. Violence involving a weapon, choking, striking, um, act against a child, pregnant woman, elderly person. Doesn't apply. Mitigating factors. Prompt acceptance of responsibility. Obviously, that doesn't apply. Voluntary engagement with clinical resources and demonstrating compliance with any recommended program of counseling. Probably doesn't apply. Voluntary restitution with the victim. That probably does apply here. Uh, he's now settled 20 of the cases. I don't know why he didn't do that beforehand, but I settled, I think, 20 of the 24 cases, I think it is. So I don't see an aggregating factor. I do see a mitigating factor. Now, this is just looking at this as the policy. Uh, I'm not saying that he doesn't deserve whatever. Uh, I went off on that rant before, um, you know, a, as to what he should have to, to deal with. I don't want to get into this nonsense of, well, he's going to bring up what did you do with your owners? It's like it, it, they're two totally different um, things. And I don't think one has anything to do with the other. Uh, I, I, I just don't think it has anything to do with that. Um, you know, you, you have a policy that you've agreed to. There's a different policy in place with the owners that has nothing to do with this case itself. That just has to do with, um, you know, the way the league is. So the next part, though, is an interesting one. A second violation will result in permanent banishment from the NFL. An individual has been banished may petition for reinstatement after one year, but there is no presumption or assurance that the petition will be granted. Now, that's kind of interesting to me because, in a sense, you probably have 24 violations of the personal conduct policy. Maybe there's a couple in there who aren't, but maybe there's a couple who haven't even come forward yet. So let's call it 24 violations. Now, I think the question is, though, is this just treated as one violation? I would think it is because I think they're looking at this as a case as the whole. But kind of the way that I would read this is that, you know, he's looking at six games. And there, I don't see the aggregating factors as they're defined here as being something that would lead to an upward I see a little bit of something that might mitigate, but, you know, they, they can't get away with that. Um, but, you know, if they determine that the, these are multiple individual violations, it would seem that your option then is just simply you're done, you know, and then you, you come back the next year. Like, to me, the way this is written, there's not a lot of middle ground. This should either be six games or it should just be forever. Um now, in terms of what they can do, 
Uh, just to go this, depending on the nature of the violation of the player's record, discipline may be a fine, a suspension for a fixed or indefinite period of time. Combination of the two or banishment from the league with a opportunity to reapply. Again, going, um, going back to this though, where they talk about aggregating factors, the way they define aggregating factors in here, I can't see how you would go upward unless it's to the indefinite level. Like, I, I don't see where they're talking about, like, well, you know, maybe it'll be 10 games, maybe it'll be 8 games, maybe it'll be 13 games. I, I don't see that the way this is written. The, the way this is written seems pretty straightforward. It's either six games based on what he's done, or they should be looking at this as multiple violations and it's just indefinite. I don't, I don't really see the reason why we're, we're going through all this nonsense of trying to, you know, figure out our different options with him. Um, you know, to me, it's one or the other. Uh, I would lean towards the other, but, you know, uh, however they, they look at this, I, I don't know. Um but I, I don't see a middle ground here at all. Um, you know, when I'm just looking at this. Um, you know, it, it's... The, the other thing is... I, I think this definitely would have been a very clear-cut six-game kind of suspension. Um, give or take. You know, if you want to throw a game or two... Maybe, but again, I don't know how. I don't think they would have appealed eight. Let's put it that way. Um, even if it was you wanted to look at the letter of the law and say aggregating factors not there based on the way you define them. Um, the thing is, the Cleveland Browns brought way too much attention onto this. This was a situation that hit kind of a peak last year the Texans try to make it go away and I I think when you look at the way that the Texans had individuals who were complicit with this most of whom probably all of them have been let go um I think you can see why why they definitely wanted to wash their hands of Watson because they knew there was more to this than um kind of meets the eye uh when it came to to all this stuff but I think the bigger issue was the Browns. You know, you, you go back to when I talked about trading for him. It's only certain front offices that can deal with it. You have to be able to deal with the media circus that's going to come with it. You have to be able to deal with the backlash that's going to come from it. You have to be able to deal with the scrutiny that's going to come from it. And they basically failed at every single level. They failed with the way they've put him in front of the media. They failed in their own explanations of their own internal investigation. All this stuff has been a failure. But the finance stuff that they did was just awful. Um, you know, you, you just couldn't get around this. And I don't know how people defend it. You know, you, you have to look at this. They gave him a raise of almost $100 million to throw an extra year onto his contract. They guaranteed the entire contract. Those guarantees can't be lost for anything involving all of these different women. As long as he informed the team that 
these are the women who are suing him or might be suing him or whatever, he can't lose those guarantees because of that. They gave him a $45 million signing bonus. A little bit under that. He's not going to forfeit it. Even if he's suspended, not going to forfeit it. You know, I, I believe that signing bonus is protected um, from that. But it, again, it's the discretion of the team. So it, it's, it is, it's protected. I, I just looked at my notes for it. So the way it's written is if he gets suspended for something related to anything that he has disclosed to them, um, is not going to be forfeited, at least for the two, it's for the first two years of the contract, 2022, 2023. So I guess the, the assumption would be if he's still suspended in 2024, then they can start to, to take money back. Um, but I think that would probably be pretty unlikely, but he could be suspended for the first two years of his deal and not have to pay any of that signing bonus money back. And I know there's a ton of people who responded to me when I talked about this or when I posted about this on Twitter were like, oh, this is just the way that the Browns do business. It doesn't matter. You have to consider the optics of this as to what they did and what they didn't do. And it's not completely the way they do business. They didn't throw voids in here. They don't have options in here because the options, in a sense, actually that, 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 goes to the Browns' favor that they don't have options in there because if he is suspended for, um, you know, an entire season or a partial part of the year, he could stand to lose a lot of money next year. Um, not this one. But, uh, you know, the optics of it were bad because the optics of it were you are looking to do as much as you can to avoid any salary loss in the event of a suspension. And that's why that contract was signed. You know, don't tell me that it's because, well, you know, there, there was a lot of competition. There, there were a lot of teams willing to do it. There were no teams in the league willing to do this deal. Because if there were teams willing to do this deal, he wouldn't have been a Cleveland Brown. He would have been on the Atlanta Falcons. He would have been on the New Orleans Saints. Maybe even would have been on the Carolina Panthers. This was the first team that was eliminated from his search until they came in and they offered him an extra, you know, 100 million bucks and said, we'll guarantee your whole deal. And he was, uh, you know, Cleveland looks pretty good now. So, you know, don't start talking about that all these teams were going to give him this. The Deshaun Watson market while it was somewhat robust, especially considering the circumstances, essentially boiled down to a handful of teams. It was Cleveland. It was, um, let's see, it was Cleveland. It was Carolina. It was Atlanta. It was New Orleans. There may have been a couple teams that did some due diligence on it. Those were the only teams really, really, really interested in it. And do I think the other teams would have done a similar structure in terms of probably paying him a signing bonus or a restructure bonus this year? 
Yeah, they probably would have. But it wouldn't have been $45 million. It would have been a lot less than that because Deshaun Watson was scheduled to make this year, 2022, he was scheduled to earn 35. He'll earn 46. So probably they would have given him like a $25 million signing bonus, 10 million P5. Um, the Saints definitely would have had to. The Saints may have had to go a little bit further with it because you know their, their cap is what it is. Um, Atlanta's might have also been in that same position too. Carolina's wouldn't have been. Um, but yeah, he was scheduled to earn 35 and 37, and he's now going to earn uh, 46 and 46. So, you know, the, the, the optics of it were just terrible. It's like if you wanted to do the deal that you were doing, you would have been better off just backloading the contract and... You know, figuring out a way to do that. Now, obviously, he wasn't going to come to Cleveland if they did that. You know, if you were going to strike a totally new deal, you know, he wasn't going to be willing to do that. But the uh, the other teams in the league, um, I don't think they were interested in really doing much in the way of a modification. Um, certainly not too much. And if that was the case, I think a lot of the negativity towards him, the scrutiny towards him probably would have not been noticed. And the league probably could have gotten away with doing what they did last year, which is to bury the head in the sand tactic and kind of go from there. And because of what Cleveland did with this contract, they brought him right back into the forefront. And, you know, the the other stuff they did, and this was not the Browns, this was on the... um, uh, this was on the on the side, really, of his agency and everything else, putting out that stuff to Adam Schefter that was just terrible. Um, you know, to go out there and repeat it. You know, he always wanted his day in court, and when he's not indicted, he's oh so happy to uh, you know show that that means he's innocent. It's like, come on, man. You, you and I. I I know there's a lot of people that don't like Schefter. I, I've met Schefter once or twice. I He's always been pretty nice to me. So, um, you know, but I, I get it. You know, you sometimes you just don't think. You know, your your job is to, to break news and do whatever. And, uh, you know, for a couple of these guys, they just parrot stuff. He's the only one who parroted that line. You know, other guys will parrot some superlative about a contract. He's the only one that parroted that line. Um, so, you know, that's, uh, you know, that that's on him. Uh, but again, I think that was a misfire by Watson's side to just don't run a victory lap. You know, you, you're in a very high profile job, high salary. You don't run a victory lap. You know, you're better off just trying to hide. And, you know, or, you know, if you're not going to hide, you know, take some responsibility for what you did. You know, even if you say you don't, you didn't think you were doing something wrong, you understand you did something wrong now that, um, you know, what, whatever. 
Um, you know, now I, I get there's still some legal stuff that's that's hanging over him right now with a couple more civil lawsuits. Maybe you can't talk about it for that reason. But, you know, don't go out there and say, oh, I didn't do anything. I don't even know why I'm here answering these questions. That's You just, you know, you're creating that snowball effect. Um, but I, I think, just getting back to it, I think the way that policy is written, it really seems to me like there's only two outcomes. Um, you know, unless they just don't want to appeal certain stuff. But it seems to me like those outcomes are six or indefinite and really not anything in between. All right, let's um, let's get on to the mailbag and the Twitter questions here. So we'll start with the emails. I know I have some stuff here. And uh, since I'm just getting back <laughs> into doing everything here, um, you know, just to, to bring it up, I, I, I have uh, checked out a couple of old emails. I know, um, I think it was, uh, I think, Jack had mentioned to me that there's something wrong with uh, some of the Browns contracts. I think he mentioned that to me a couple times. I know he listens, so um, I'll take a look at that this week. Uh, I just haven't had a chance. Um, Eric says that J.D. McKissick is missing. I didn't see that one. I did look at that one. I don't know why he's not showing... If he's not showing up... Um, let me see um, if he's not showing up. Let's see. Teams, Washington. I was pretty sure he was showing up. But you never know. Sometimes I screw. No, he's there. Uh, he, maybe he's just down on the list. So he, he should be there. Uh, but I'll, I'll check those Browns contracts. Um, Javin? If I'm Javin... I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, Colts fan from New York. Oh, how do you live in this area but be a Colts fan? Okay. Um, let's see. As a huge Colts fan, I know you've said in the past that Chris Ballard is too conservative. Uh, I know that Jim Mercer was quite disappointed with how the season ended last year, and there's some talk that the season doesn't go better, that changes might occur. I've been a staunch defender of the current regime, and I think the process Ballard and Reich have, uh, have is solid. Uh, even if some of their gambles have not paid off. If the Colts have another disappointing season, do you think it might be time to move on? Um, no, I don't. I, I think I think the limiting factor in Indianapolis is the owner. I think the owner's cheap. Um, I, I don't think that this is... I, I don't think that this is completely Ballard not looking to spend. I think that this is a general manager in a situation where he knows there's a very limited number over him and he's trying to figure out the best way to handle it. And maybe the best way for them to handle it is to be very risk averse and just get into these one year deals where they can very quickly kind of move on from them. Now, I I do think there are ways he can be more aggressive within whatever confines that they have. And I, I think, and I've spoken with other people about this as well, who actually work in the league, um, you know, kind of on this topic, because th this has come up a lot of times, that I, I you know, I, I think when you look at the stuff they do, it's, it's pretty good, right? You know, he's, 
it, they, they have a, a mid-grade roster, um, you know, especially when you look at kind of quarterback and stuff like that, and they've been very competitive. He's been able to build, and, you know, maybe it's not the highest of levels. Maybe it, it just amounts to the, um, you know, always losing wild card round Bengals of the past or something like that. But he's been able to build in a kind of a non-traditional way a roster that at the very least competes for the playoffs. Do they have an advantage that they're in a terrible division every year? Yeah. Um, But, you know, he's been able to build a roster um, that kind of does that. So, you know, I, I think... And they have taken some risks, right? I mean, they, they did make the trade for Buckner, and um, they made the trade for Wentz, and they, they they lost their picks for that because they thought they were going to make the playoffs until Wentz remembered he was Wentz and, you know, couldn't beat the Jaguars. But, uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't get rid of them. I, I wouldn't change anything there. I, I think that if I'm the owner, I'm just going to look in the mirror. Unless... Now, in, unless I'm totally off base on that and he's giving them a budget and they're just like, no, we don't want to do it. Because, you know, from what I've seen from them in the past, I they're one of the low spenders in the league. So I, I think that's I think it's on the ownership. I don't think it's on the GM and the coach. Um But I, I would like to see them be more aggressive with certain things they do. <clears throat> Um, you know, even if it means finding ways to to do longer term deals, you know, may, maybe there are a couple players where instead of doing a one year deal, you got to do two year deals, or maybe a three year deal. Maybe you need to be more aggressive in the trade market. You know, did why I'll bring up the Buckner one. They're probably a team that should have been more aggressive in trying to trade up to draft a quarterback. You know, the, there's only so many times where you you can go this let's be honest, crappy quarterback route, you know, of Carson Wentz, Matt Ryan, and, you know, Matt Ryan's had an incredible career. If Matt Ryan has a, a resurgence in Indianapolis, it would be kind of surprising. Um, you know, I, I think I'd like to see them, uh, if they're not going to spend because they can't, take some more risks with what you have in the draft to be able to go and get a quarterback. Um you know, or, you know, look at one of these young quarterbacks who maybe has some potential. You know, whether that's a Mayfield, whether that is, um, oh, I don't, I don't even know who else might be out there. I mean, uh, Darnold, you knew from the Jets, was going to be terrible. So, I mean, I, I I get why they didn't go there. But, like, look, look at the Mayfield types. You know, look at a Jameis Winston, you know. Is there something that the coach could do with a Jameis Winston? Maybe he couldn't. Maybe there's absolutely nothing he could do with that. Um, but th- those are the kind of areas that I, I probably would look at. You know, if, if San Francisco doesn't trade Garoppolo this year, and you know they decide that Garoppolo's the guy and Trey Lance is a bust, could you do something with Trey Lance? Is there something that you could do there? Is there something that you see with a player like that? You know, if Chicago decides to go in another direction, can you get Justin Fields on the cheap? Those are the kind of players I want to look at. If I can't get a quarterback because I'm always winning nine games or something like that in the draft, and I want to trade up for one of those guys, 
who are some of these younger guys that have quickly fallen out of favor? You know, if Zach Wilson sucks this year, is there something they could do by trading a second-round pick for Zach Wilson or third-round pick? Take that risk. Um, I think that's what I, I would look at. Uh, Colby says, I hope you're feeling better and we're able to go on your family trip. Thank you very much for saying that. Uh, my question about buying draft picks via Seattle, Carolina trade with the Browns. If they were willing to take Baker in his whole contract, do you think the Browns would pay that uh, with a higher draft pick or take a lower one in return? Or do you think they just hold, cut him, hope for real trade midseason? Um, I, I think... Um, if if a team was to take on Baker Mayfield's entire contract, yeah, I think the Browns would have to give a draft pick. Um, I, I think that's that's the way it would have to be. I, I think this would be one of those deals where if they traded Baker Mayfield, they would get like a four or a five and they would have to give up a two in return. Um, maybe a three, probably a two. Um, you know, to get somebody to take that contract. I think the the issue here is that, you know, I, I think the Seattle stuff is just being floated out there for the sake of just floating something out there. I think their argument with Carolina is Carolina had a similar situation with Teddy Bridgewater and they prepaid part of Bridgewater's contract and they took a, you know, a small amount of it, you know, $7 million, you know, actually pretty good amount but uh something like seven million of the of the deal and they uh you know they still got like a like a lousy pick for him so i think that cleveland would be pushing for them to only pick up a couple million of the bill and in return they they would get only like a sixth round pick or something like that or fifth round pick for him uh but i think because of his his salary and the questions and the the Browns issues that they have there. I think most of these teams would be looking at the Browns and being like, you guys should pick up, you know, most of the bill and we'll give you a third and we'll, we'll put conditionals in there based on success. Maybe if we extend them, um, all those different things to where that can rise to a two or a one. Uh, but you got, you got to foot the bill, you know, or most of it. I, I think that's the, that's kind of the way it would go. Uh, ben, um, everyone likes to gauge and rank players based on salary. I like to use average per year to do it, but I've realized lately it's biased towards players who sign extensions before the end of the deal. Example, ter example Terry McLaurin signed three for 69 in new money. Christian Kirk signed four for 72 as a free agent. Um, so they're both under contract for four seasons for 72, but we talk about Kirk being 18 a year, McLaurin 23 a year. How come? So that's a good question. Um, when we get into the, the valuation of players, the reason that we use a new money analysis is we're really looking at what is the worth of that player if he was a free agent. Because basically what you're doing when you extend a player is you're buying out his free agency. That's the way that I like to look at it. You're saying that, okay, option A is you play out this season for... Uh, McLaurin's salary, I think, it was two seven nine, um, you know, plus seventeenth game check. Let's just say two seven nine or two eight, whatever the number was. Um, play that, and then we'll offer you an extension for twenty three million in March, and you'll sign it then. Or 
you can just sign the twenty three million right now, and we're buying out your free agency. You're losing your your opportunity at free agency next year. So that's why we value it that way. In terms of the cap charge, you're right. You know, the every every year I usually put up a post. Really, I, I should just put it in the premium section. I should put a whole uh, thing up on this where we value the players on the team by effective value, meaning what is the effective cost of those players? And we look at that two ways. Um, typically what I'll do is I'll look at that as what was the value of the contract as a whole. Uh, some people refer to that as a paper value. So it would be here where you're talking about 72 for four for McLaurin. Um, or I'll look at it from a salary cap perspective and just say, what is the remaining salary cap cost divided by the number of years remaining for the player? And sometimes that can give you a pretty good idea, not so much of the the worth of the, the player, but more of um, the way that the team values the current roster going forward. Um, and if there might be some salary cap issues based on that. But the, the reason that you want to use that average per year is it's a reflection on what the team how the team values that player. The gray area for that, and I've screwed this up myself and I've talked about it, when a player is traded for and that player signs an extension, um, the team that trades for him really has no skin in the game. And we should probably value those contracts as a whole. Even if those player agents, and this is where it gets tricky because the agents are negotiating most of the time on the basis of new money. Many times the teams are negotiating just on the basis of, well, you know, for us, we didn't have any skin in the game. So it's a new five-year deal. So, you know, the Dolphins deal for Tyreek Hill is probably 24. You know, the Hopkins deal, the Hopkins deal, I really screwed up. I, I, it would have caused all kinds of confusion. I'm sure I would have gotten an angry email, but you know that deal was like 18, um, not 28. Uh, Percy Harvin years ago, I valued as new money. It shouldn't have been. Um, you know that that's those are mistakes that I've made, and I, I still have to decide how I'm going to deal with them in the future uh, when it comes to some of these traded contracts because the reported numbers it, it creates. All kinds of mass confusion when you go way against the grain of what's reported. And the second issue with it is that it is true that while the team side is looking at it one way, the agent side is clearly looking at it a different way. And they're only agreeing to the deal because they're looking at it a different way. And I've always painted it in that direction. But there's there's stuff I've done that's bad with that. Um but yeah, when you when you look at those two players, you can look at it from a salary cap perspective and say by doing the extension now, they're able to finagle the salary cap hits however they want to be similar to the Christian Kirk deal. But in terms of value, they clearly are looking at McLaurin as a far, far, far better player um, than they would be looking at as Christian Kirk. So if you wanted to value the roster... <clears throat> not value like cap obligations and stuff like that. If you were just looking to say, well, what is the, what are the value? What is it? How does the team value the wide receivers that they have? You want to use that new money that, that'll, that'll put that in a much better perspective 
than the paper value of that contract or effective value of the contract. All right, let's see, Dave, uh, this is long. Uh, I'm an Eagles fan. Uh, Taylor Rager's financial situation. Philly is a pretty big market, so there are a million people who cover the team. Uh, when his chances of getting cut come up, they all say the same thing. His contract will hold him here, even if that means they waste a roster spot on him. Let me just take a look at his contract. It's probably fully guaranteed, but let me just look it up. Yeah, so his contract is uh, guaranteed the next two years. All right, let me pull that up again. Um, since he's for, oh, I guess I should have read it further. Uh, <laughs> his seven, eight or so remaining in his contract is going to all hit the cap at some point, assuming not traded. If they cut him this year, it would increase his cap number by 2.4 this year. Uh, but would still be the seven eight over the next two years. Either way, Eagles will lose two four and roll over, but his cap hit next year would be two four or less, so they make that right back. Um, yeah, you could look at it that way. Um, they very well want to keep him just because they don't want to give up first round pick, but his financials have nothing to do with that decision. Am I thinking about this correctly? Thanks. Um, everyone who covers an NFL team should be mandated to read your book or something because it's crazy that almost none of them understand the basics of the cap. I will say this. Um, a lot of people who cover the NFL teams have uh, read the book or at least look at it, have it as a reference guide. Um, so even if people don't pull it in, I'm amazed at the, the the amount of people who bought that book. And one day, VJ and I will will do an updated version, I promise. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you're right that, uh, you know, they, they could cut him this year and, you know, just say basically it's the same situation. You know, whether we have him now or not, it's the same deal. The only thing I would say um, is I, I'm pretty sure his salary is subject to offsets. So I would imagine if he got cut this year, he would sign for the minimum, which is three seasons. What's that? Um, 8.25 this year? 95? I, I think it might be 895. Uh, let me see if I can pull those up real quick. All right, 2022. So yeah, 895. So you know you you would uh, you get an 895 credit for this year. Next year he could make 985. No about 1 million. The problem is if he sucks um you know with another team he probably only ends up on like a practice squad contract the following year. So I I think the way that you might look at this um I think is you would say all right we're going to see with better personnel at receiver you know, where we've got our, our top pick from last year and we've got A.J. Brown. What can we get out of him? You know, clearly that would justify $1.8 You don't need a lot to justify a $1.8 million cost. But, you know, even if, we, if things go sideways and we don't get anything, probably if we cut him next year, uh, he would make the minimum, you know, that $1 million and probably make a team... Unless he sucked really bad in training camp. 
Um, so I think the way that the, that I would look at this is I would probably say it's worth the $1.8 million gamble. You don't have to be very productive to justify a $1.8 million um, salary. So I, I think I, I would probably look at it that way. And, you know, I, then I would look at it that like, okay, if he's still only a 300-yard receiver, which honestly, a 300-yard receiver is probably going to cost you four, $4 bucks. You know, if if the guy is able to get to a second contract, he's probably going to cost you three or four million. Um, I would probably look at it like I'll take my shot with him, and if he doesn't play well, I can always cut him next year, and he'll sign for one, and I'll get my one million back. And so I, I think I would take that um, that opportunity over just cutting him now, getting back my eight ninety five. And possibly getting back nothing the next year, um, you know, or getting back a practice squad contract of two hundred, you know, something like that. I, since the the financial numbers probably work out the same, I, I take my chances that I could try to get something out of him this year. Because he, even if he stinks this year, because of uh, his draft grade. Teams around the league are still going to think they can get something out of him. They're just going to blame Philadelphia for it. All right. Let's take a look now on Twitter. I think that's it for the emails. Sorry if I missed anyone. Let's see. Um, okay. So let's go back to the first post. Okay, isn't a, uh, Captain Buccaneer, isn't a void year essentially dead money factored into the contract? What is the difference if you pay the player when he's not on your roster? Um, so it it just kind of depends. You know, you, you don't want to have a ton of dead money. So uh, speaking from the Buccaneers' perspective, you know, the Buccaneers for a long period of time didn't use signing bonuses at all. So they were basically building their dead money into the contracts, right? The guys didn't last very long, some of them. And you'd cut them and say, well, we didn't take any dead money. It's like, well, you paid Darrell Rivas $16 million last year. So he didn't even make it to year two. So obviously a lot of that $16 million was basically dead money. You know, would it, is that any different than, um, you know, paying him a salary of $4 million to where you would add $12 million in dead money? Uh, salary cap hit of that. Um so the void year, you know, the, the problem with the void year, you, know, you can give players a lot of leverage uh, when it comes to their, their contracts. It makes it hard to cut certain play or let certain players walk. Um, it becomes hard to extend them. You know, it's the, the Tony Romo factor. Um you know, and th this is where if you let the void money, the dead void money, become so big, so large, um, that it can impact your decisions. And this is not to say that Tony Romo was a good player. Tony Romo was a terrific player. They had to do a contract with him that didn't make any sense based on his age, his injury potential, and everything else. Um when you do that so i think the thing is you, you need to be cautious 
with what you do, um, you know, when it comes to that, you also, excuse me, don't want to compromise your team to where you have so much dead money hitting in one year that it puts you past like a, a reasonable threshold. So, you know, I'm just going to look at Tampa here. So if Tampa was to let every contract void, um, you know, you'd have a $35 million hit for Brady, uh, about $7 million for David, so you're at 42. Um, Hicks would be another five, so that's 47. Golston would be two four. Uh, so let's call it 49. I think that's everybody. So, you know, you're you're talking about 49 million in dead money um, over, I, I don't know what the cap will be, but let's say it's 220. You know, that, that's already 23% of the cap uh, before you, you've even made another move. So, you know, it, it's like you, that's a number where, you know, it, it's probably high enough to where it can become detrimental to your team. So I, I think that's why you want to look at it that way. But in a sense, yeah, it is. It's you, you're trying to project where that dead money is going to be and you're utilizing his, um, you're, you're utilizing whatever mechanisms to maximize your roster for this one season. Uh, Marauder NFL, Watson, what's the trigger for his contract tolling to 2023? Full season suspension. So, if he's out for the entire year, his contract will toll. Uh, I think anything less than that, even like a 16-game suspension, I don't believe it tolls. I don't think it, it's, it follows the like accrued credited season kind of deals where, or accrued seasons where you got to have six. Um, I think the full thing. TC, um, beyond seeing growth and analyzing it, is it possible and how do you predict what position groups will see growth in the upcoming seasons? Is it based off certain uh, number of superstars at the position or due to other factors? So the superstar aspect obviously is a uh, consideration, but I, I think it's that stuff I talked about earlier today. Um, I think what we want to do is we really want to see it's that back end of the market that a lot of times is going to lead us to having to modify the front end. It's not the front end going first and everybody picking up behind them. In a lot of ways, it's that the top is lagged and it's allowed like this, this group of players who are a lot lesser to make more and more and more. And when that gap shrinks, you know, just to an unacceptable level, the top players at that position have to earn more money and it has to make a switch, um, you know, at the, at the position. Ted says, do you see the wide receiver market cooling down or leveling off in the coming years uh, or not? So in terms of salary, yeah, I think we're, we're done. Um, you know, you're, you're going to get the guys this year, you know, you're, you're going to get Metcalf and you're going to get Samuel and you're going to get uh, um, Jefferson in the future. Who's going to get, ridiculous amount of money but that's just one guy so i i think the i think in general I, I think the wide receiver market is done right now um and i think you'll go back to incremental growth trade market i think is going to continue to heat up 
And I, I think you're going to see more and more of these teams that have these quarterbacks who become established are going to look to trade off their wide receivers. Um, you know, unless the quarterbacks just kind of demand it. Like Brady, you know, Tampa Bay is not going to, would never in a million years think of dropping Brady's receivers. They, they never would have thought of that. Um, but I, I think as you look down right now at um, some of these, these teams, um, you know, the Cowboys have clearly moved down on their receivers, and it'll be interesting to see what happens with Lamb if he takes that next step as to what they do with him. Um, the Vikings will probably drop the quarterback. Uh, Lions don't have anybody really worthwhile. Uh, Washington... They're, they're, they have a mid-level quarterback. Um, Colts will be a team, I think, that'll look to get into a wide receiver mix if guys are available. I think the Titans look at their quarterback as too expensive. Um, you know, so I, I think it, I think when you, you get into the rookies, uh, you know, or the younger players, you look at Lawrence, uh, I think what you do is you look at Burrow, you know, Will the Bengals be willing to do Burrow and Chase? My guess is they will. Will they be willing to do Burrow and Chase and all these other guys if they're, you know, still productive? No, they'll, they'll probably let those other other players, you know, Higgins and Boyd, probably walk. Um, Arizona, you know, we, we already saw they let Kirk walk. They're probably going to have an interesting decision with Brown, I would think, walk. And, you know, Hopkins will get cut. Uh, the Jets, who knows? Um, who knows? Let's just hope Zach Wilson has a, a much better season. You know, Miami is going to give this a shot for two years with Tua, and then it's probably time to make changes. So, you know, I, I think it's just, uh, you know, you're going to look at each one of these teams individually, and you're going to pick and choose where these wide receivers wind up. Uh, speaking of Joe Burrow, uh, Baba says, how would Joe Burrow's future contract impact the Bengals, especially if they break the guarantee structure? Uh, it's not a big deal. Look, I, I've always said this. You can break precedent for a quarterback, and teams have done that, right? The Packers have done it. Uh, the Steelers did it to a very limited extent with injury guarantees uh, for Roethlisberger. You can always break precedent for a quarterback and just simply say, it's quarterback. So... You know, you, you can do that. The thing is, if you get a quarterback and you can get them to agree to certain things. So, for example, um, you know, I've always said I didn't like the 49ers deal with Jimmy Garoppolo. I, I didn't think, you know, it made sense. Um, but, you know, there are things they got in there that were good for them. You know, they're able to get 800000 per year in per-game roster bonuses. Like that, that's a big thing because if you have your quarterback taking those, it's like, how can any other player on the team say they're not going to take a per game bonus? 600,000 a year in workout bonuses. Again, guy doesn't want to take a bonus for coming and working out in the offseason. It's like, our quarterback is doing it and he's taking a big number. How can you not take 500,000 or 400 or 250? So, um, you know, so. Even even if you break certain things, 
if you get other concessions within that contract, um, you know, I I think that makes sense. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think that makes sense for the Bengals because you can get benefits in other ways even if you're breaking your your guarantee structure. I think the issue that would be with the Bengals is will the Bengals pay for all these players or are they going to be a team that looks at it like we paid their quarter we paid our quarterback and now it's time to pay nobody. Um I think that that's a legitimate question. And I know people pick on the Bengals a lot for that. That applies to more than a handful of teams. You know, the Chiefs don't have a big budget most years, I don't think. Um, I don't have that in front of me. But I, I think when I, I did a uh, a look at spending, I think they weren't that high. Um, I'm not going to pull it up now. But, you know, the, the Chiefs, for example, I, I don't think, you know, fall into the Eagles category where a lot of times you just have a big budget. Um, you know, and they, they've obviously had very talented players, very talented team. Uh, Thomas says, in one of your latest tweets, you mentioned the difference between the NFL and NBA and how Durant can force his way to a team if he wants to. Tell a bit more about the difference. Do NBA, NBA players in general have more leverage compared to N, NFL players? Um, yeah, they do. Uh, you know, it, it's like Durant says, I don't want to be on the Nets. And there's no question, he's not going to be on the Nets. You will not find another football player that, that has that ability to do that. The only player who's really been able to force his way out was Antonio Brown when he just went nuts. And he went nuts. You know, everybody else, people say, well, I'd like you to meet Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson wanted out last year. They didn't trade him. They traded him this year because they said, you know what? He was hurt and we didn't get anywhere and, you know, it's not worth the, it's not worth the trouble. You know, Deshaun Watson, he's not in Houston because it's not worth the trouble. You know, when you when you want these players to stick around, they stick around. You know, I, I think that the difference right now in the NFL, when players voice their opinion, especially when they're near the end of their contract, teams are starting to weigh the decision of, What's more worthwhile, having to try to pacify the situation for this year and then letting the player leave as a free agent or going through the franchise tag process or just taking draft compensation now and getting him out of the locker room? And I think a lot of teams don't want to deal with confrontation, so they just trade the player. And I think that's happened a little bit. But... You know, Kansas City's moving Tyreek Hill because they don't want Tyreek Hill anymore. Uh, for whatever reasons, they, they've decided they don't want him anymore. The Nets obviously want Kevin Durant, but they're going to be forced to move him. Uh, I think one of the big differences, and I know people will point to, well, you know, it's a, it's a league where, you know, in the NBA, basically six players are meaningful, probably. In the NFL, you probably have 15 that are meaningful. Um, I think the issue with the NBA is if you go to salary structure, the NBA has a, a limit on your max contract. So when a player is unhappy in a, a given location, and remember these deals are all guaranteed, 
um, when a player is unhappy, the Nets can't come in there and say, we'll give you an extra $20 million to make you happy. They can't do that. They can't. He's maxed out. I'm assuming Durant's maxed out, you know, unless he agreed to a lower deal. Um, the reason the NBA did this, this is years and years and years ago. They thought this would be a way that they could keep stars on their individual teams. And I think from a player's perspective, their biggest money actually comes from endorsements. And, you know, there was ridiculous sneaker money to be made. So who cared? Um, you know, about the, the actual money that could be earned. Um, but, you know, I, I think that's one of the big differences. And, you know, it, it's that that number that's there. You know, that, that that's kind of the problem. And I think that gets into your salary cap stuff. You know, you, you can... As long as you can create that space in the NBA, you can get a guy in. Um, you know, anyone. You know, big stars. You know, two stars, three stars, whatever it might be. Um, but if you had legitimate free agency where you could just pay whatever you want to do a player, you would get a lot different outcomes than the players who try to manipulate the system, um, you know, to get three big stars on one team. So I, I think that that's a big deal. The other thing is the NBA has always been a player-driven league. The union has been agent-driven, uh, going back to like David Falk, um, you know, Basically, the, the stars of the union took over the union in the 90s. Um, whereas in the NFL, you actually have union leaders who run the union, not the players. So, you know, it, it's a player-driven league from that sense. And it's a player-driven league in the sense that the players are the product in the NBA. Um you know, Durant is the face of the Nets. There, there's no replacing Durant. Um, you know, Steph Curry is the face in Golden State. Uh, you know, going in the past, you know, you, Kobe Bryant was the face of the Lakers. Before that, Shaq was the face of the Lakers. Before that, Magic Johnson was the face of the Lakers. Larry Bird with the Celtics. Patrick Ewing with the Knicks. Um, you know, obviously Jordan with the Bulls. You know, these players are synonymous with the organizations. And the kids, adults, the fans, whatever you want to call them, they become fans of the players. They're not fans of the team. There are people who are fans of the team, but by and large, the NBA has done a tremendous job of making the stars the focal point of the show. Uh, LeBron James, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, who, whomever it might be, those are the stars of the show. And people follow them. You know, the, the I go back to, you know, Shaq. The Orlando Magic had a fan base because of Shaquille O'Neal and Penny Hardaway. They didn't have an Orlando Magic fan base. 
They were there to see Scott Skiles or whatever. They were there to for Shaq and Penny. When Shaq left to L.A., Orlando probably lost a lot of fans. Um, you know, they, they're probably your, your more traditional franchises like the Knicks that might not apply to as much. But for the most part, they're fans of the players. And when that player leaves the team, a lot of times they might leave with them. Um, so the players just have a, a lot of a lot of cachet, you know. They 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 just do um, with it. The NFL is a team driven league. Um, it is not a player driven league. There are a handful of players, you know, who obviously, you know, a Tom Brady is immortal, but has New England lost a lot because Brady left? Probably not. You know, are they going to be as successful? No. But, you know, they, they probably haven't lost a lot of their fans because Tom Brady left. Um, you know, when Peyton Manning was cut from the Colts, it's not like a bunch of Colts fans became Broncos fans. You know, you root for the helmet and you root for the player when he's wearing that helmet. But when he leaves the team, you shrug your shoulders and next man up. So I, I think it's very different um, with the amount of te- attention that's given to the players. And with that attention comes a lot more um, power um, when it comes to it. I mean, even if you look at the coaching, when Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving, you know, when they're like, eh, you know, I, I don't want Atkinson to be my coach anymore. You know, I, I want somebody else. You fire the coach. Yeah, I'm a Nets fan. You know, when Jason Kidd, not happy with um, Byron Scott, fire the coach. Um, in the NFL, that doesn't fly. You know, you, you need a lot of people in an organization to be unhappy with the coach before they, uh, they do that. Uh, Chuck, why did the Ravens settlement with uh, Earl Thomas cause them a 1-5 cap hit this year weren't the Ravens required to reserve cap space for a salary in dispute in prior years per cap rules? Wouldn't that reserve carry over to this year to offset the settlement? And I don't have an answer to that. I, I have not been able to figure out, and so if anyone is listening that uh, works in the league um, that has any thoughts on this, and maybe I'll reach out to some people and ask them, I have no idea... Why Earl Thomas's grievance did not hit the cap. I have looked through the CBA to see that. So unless I just have bad information, always possible. Um, I don't understand why um, that was the case. Now, I mean, I, I guess there's a... No, you know, I, I was going to say that there's a possibility that... Um, you know, maybe this is above and beyond the 40% grievance, but I know that's not the case. Um, so, so, yeah, I, I can't really find an explanation for that. And I, I this has happened a couple of times. You know, there's been a couple other times where it's like, I, okay, I could see that maybe the grievance was filed kind of in that, that donut hole period where it's kind of a off-season kind of area. That wasn't the case with the Thomas one. So I'm not really sure why that is uh, because the injuries and non-injury grievances should be held to the same level. 
um, you know, with the the forty percent charge, but didn't seem that that was the case here. So I, I'll try to look into that, but I, I don't really know um, because you know I, I think his guarantee was ten. Typically, you would have a grievance for ten, and they would put a hold of four uh, on your salary cap, and then things would change based on what the settlement was. Um, but yeah, I, I don't I, I don't have an answer to that one. Uh, Joseph says, when talking about positional salary, how do you calculate what's real and what's fake? For example, Tyreek's contract isn't actually 30, even though it says it is. Um, since the Tyreek Hill example is pretty limited, uh, usually I'll just run them at the, the stated value. Um, you know, if, if I was doing something on a, like a consulting basis, um, you know, for the wide receiver position, I would probably put a couple of those contracts in a different light. But for like stuff that I put online, um, I'm just going to put it as him making 30. Um, but, you know, it, yeah, if you were looking at like a more legitimate thing, um, really what you would do, and this really is only applicable, I think, at this moment to the wide receiver market you would take Tyreek Hill's four-year, you would take Devontae Adams' three-year, you would take A.J. Brown's three-year value, and you would use those numbers as what are the legitimate contract values for those players um, versus whatever is the stated numbers, you know, the 30, uh, 25 for A.J. Brown, um, uh, Devontae Adams, what's he at, 28? On paper, uh, you you would back those numbers out to come up with the the actual value. All right, let's see. Cap issues coming out of Deshaun and maybe a trade for Jimmy G. Oh God, I could not see them trading for Jimmy Graham. Um, so if Deshaun Watson is suspended, I mean, I believe his cap number basically stays the same. His uh, one million base goes away, but his signing bonus money should should remain that should not toll with the contract um the p5's toll roster bonus he doesn't have any roster bonuses in there to, uh, to toll but i think just the p5's toll the um the other stuff should not so i i believe um that he would have like a eight million cap charge or so All right, Jason says, why don't the Colts play the cap is going up every year so we can play the cap game like some other teams are? I think they just have a limited budget. I, I firmly believe that their owner doesn't spend and he doesn't give them a budget to spend. Maybe it's because he's busy buying Kurt Cobain guitars. I don't know. Uh, but I, I think that's the main reason why. Apparently inebriated. That is a good name. Uh, are the Rams that much better than everyone else when it comes to contract structure? No. Uh, what the Rams are doing right now that's successful for them, two things. Uh, number one is they're very aggressive in the trade market, and most of these trades have worked out for them. So they have kept the actual values of their players down uh, in terms of a cap and overall budget by trading for players who have already had a, a portion of their contracts picked up by other teams. And the other thing is that they do... Um, better than most probably not everybody but better than most 
they're willing to do extensions early at this point, and those extensions, I think, give them a lot of salary cap leeway. Um, you know, to to maneuver the numbers to kind of make sense for them. Um, and you know, I I think that's a big thing that they they do that other teams don't other teams i think wait i think they're willing to be proactive and just kind of do their deals uh what percent of dead cap is deemed acceptable by most teams so i think you base that kind of on a percentage of the cap i think as long as you are under as long as you're under 15 percent of the cap that year uh i think you're fine uh i don't know exactly what teams think on that on that number uh, but I would look at it as somewhere, you know, 10 to 15% is probably acceptable. Anything above 15, you're getting into a danger zone. Above 20 is probably pretty dangerous. Is Dan Snyder considered cash poor when it comes to signing free agents? Uh, I don't think so. I think they just haven't gone in that direction for some time. Uh, they used to go in that direction, and it was a disaster. So I think they just kind of moved away from that. Will Quan Alexander sign with the Jets? Uh, if he's willing to sign for, like, the minimum? Sure. Uh, the the one thing that the, the Jets have done, that Joe Douglas has done, uh, with few exceptions, you know, Khalil, um, I think what he's done is... When the summer rolls around, he targets certain guys and pretty much lowballs them. Um, you know, the tackle last year, you know, a couple players. You know, you offer them like $2 million, $3 million bucks. Uh, I'm not saying the minimum, but, you know, $2 million, $3 million to where the player probably looks at that and is like, I should be making more money than that. And, you know, your July rolls around or August rolls around and they're like... I don't have any interest from anyone else. You know what? Maybe I need to call back the Jets and see if that $2 million or $3 million offer still stands because I'm looking at playing on a practice squad contract. So I think that uh, there's a good chance that Alexander will sign with the Jets because his injury history is so bad. I don't believe that other teams are going to pony up the money. And so I think the Jets probably have made a minimal but not minimum offer are probably above everybody else and it's just a question as to um whether or not he he's willing to do that you know he he's made a lot of money in his career so he may not want to play for that but i i I would say if he wants to play there there's a good there's a good possibility he'll land with the jets in the summer uh, Zach has a question. Could you explain why dead cap isn't necessarily a bad thing? Um, so in a sense, you need to take risks if you're an NFL team. And when you don't take on any dead money at all, it means you basically took on no risk, right? You either were doing contracts that had no prorated money in them and you were limiting what you could do with your entire roster by inflating your salary cap hits um you know and maybe you missed out on signing one or two players who could have been helpful 
uh, to your roster. So, you know, as long as you are in line with the rest of the league, you know, if you're in that ballpark, you're perfectly fine. If you look at the numbers, there's nothing that shows that the teams who have had no dead money, you know, the Buccaneers of the past, the Bengals, those kind of teams, there's nothing that shows that those teams have been, over the long run, any more successful than teams that traditionally have, like, you know, in this salary cap era, um, 15, 16, 17 million dollars in dead money. And actually, they've probably been less successful. And again, I think the reason for that is that the teams that are taking on that 15, 16 million dollars in dead money have tried to maximize their rosters. Um, you know, in a given season to a reasonable extent. You know, not not the teams that are just, you know, like the Saints that are just, everybody's at the minimum salary and just prorate everything. Um, you know, where, where they've done it cautiously, um, you know, those teams typically are more successful. So I, I think that dead money to a certain level is a good thing. Because it shows you are you're making attempts to be better, um, whether it's worked out or not, you know who knows. But I, I think that's the that's the big thing. Uh, Derek, after this year, Wentz has no guaranteed money as remaining two years. Do you think he'll try to renegotiate if he has an okay year with eight or nine? Could they get him to take a pay cut if he underperforms? I'm curious how the possibilities play out. Uh, so if Carson Wentz sucks this year, I mean. I think they just move on. You know, Washington's in QB hell. They're in QB limbo. Um, You know, I I think you just move on. I mean, he makes, uh, let me see what he makes next year. So he does have $4 million in salary uh, guarantees. So that becomes guaranteed during the offseason. So they can move on before that. Um, Yeah, I... I don't think so. I, I think, you know, if he's okay enough, he's going to cost you 26. You're going to keep him. If he sucks, he's probably not going to take a pay cut. And quite honestly, you should just be moving on anyway. So I don't I don't think they'll go the route of pay cut and give him another shot. I think this is a situation where he's either going to be really good this year and you keep him or he's going to suck and you just move on. Have you done any research on or have any thoughts on the most successful ways to uh, spread the cap across the roster? Having a rookie QB helps, but uh, what if successful teams invested the most money? Is the current trend for uh, paying wide receivers a proven recipe for success? Uh, I'll have something on that in the coming weeks. Um, I've done a little bit of work on that. Um, I I don't think you're going to find anything too um, decisive. You know, you're, you're basically looking at playoffs or 10 plus win kind of teams versus the the lesser teams um i think the main stuff that you'll see from a salary cap perspective because remember salary cap is really easily manipulated um i think the main stuff that you'll see from a salary cap perspective is um teams over a certain level of dead dead money typically stink um Teams that are not willing to maximize their cap spending, you know, the those teams that are just focused on carryover numbers typically stink. 
Um, I, I think those those are the the big picture takeaways of stuff that I've seen is that you want to um, be a team that spends most of your cap in a given year, you know, to, to maximize the potential of your roster. Uh, and you obviously want to have a good portion of your, your money allocated to players on the roster. You, you don't want to have an excessive amount of dead money, um, you know, on the books. So I, I think those are the the two big things that I would look at. But there, there's some other stuff to, to look at in terms of um, spending. And hopefully I'll have something on that in the coming weeks. You know, I get some time to write. Uh, name three things you would change in the next CBA. What were three things you were surprised did not get changed in the last CBA? Um, I don't think I was really surprised by anything with the CBA. But the stuff that I would change, number one, rookie contracts have to be shorter term. It's It would be better for the league. It would be cooler for free agency. And it would definitely be better for the players. Um, most teams make their decisions after two years on a player. There's no reason why those players can't be extended at that time. There's no reason why their contract shouldn't run out after two years. Um, you know, if the players aren't any good, it's a no harm, no foul kind of situation, right? You are going to pay them, you know, whatever the base salary is this year, what, 895 You would still pay them 895 You would just have them as a free agent that you would re-sign for 895 um, you know, and in a sense, as a team, you might make out better because if the rookie contracts are only two years, that would split the signing bonuses basically in half. So, you know, there's some benefits to the team in that regard, but the, the bigger benefit to me is to the players. Um, but I, I do think it'd be a lot more fun for the league because the way the league is, it basically hitting 28 years old is almost like a death blow for free agency. Uh, so it, you want to be a free agent, you know, if you can be, if, have a, a whole league of free agents that are 24, 25 years old, you actually have chances for these bad teams to get better through free agency. And you have a chance for free agency to be meaningful and impactful, um, versus what it is now. So that, that's the biggest change I want to see in the CBA, uh, I'd like to see the minimum spending requirements to be raised actually above the cap. I think that would be a big thing um, that would help overall. I think that would drag a lot of those lower spenders like the Colts up um, if they did that. And I know you might hear that and say, oh, that's kind of crazy. Look at what most teams spend. Most teams spend above the cap every year. They should get all teams to spend above the cap. Uh, so that's probably the second thing. Um, if there was a third thing, I would get away with the franchise. I would get rid of the franchise tag, but I, I can understand why that will never happen. Um, but I, I do like the idea of the franchise tag kind of vanishing. Um, you know, because I, I think that the the franchise tag doesn't have the same relevance or importance that it it used to have and I, I think it's not used the proper way uh let's see any plans to eventually create a trade value for each player is the market too unpredictable and trades too uncommon to chart uh you know we could probably sit down and kind of come up with something 
you know, as, as more, as we see more and more trades, but I do think the trade market is still pretty volatile. Um, but I'd, I'd have to sit down and track a couple of trades to see how that goes. AD, how much does a one-year suspension actually hurt the Browns and Watson? So Watson, not very much. About a million bucks. Uh, actually, no. It wouldn't really cost them anything. It would cost them a year of free agency. It's contracted toll. So salary next year would be one million. Um, the Browns wouldn't have a quarterback this year. You know, who's, who's their backup? Jacoby Brissett? They're not going to mend fences with Baker Mayfield. So, you know, that, that's their problem is they, they wouldn't have a quarterback this year. Uh, Christian, regarding four-year rookie deals for non-first-round picks, how do they determine if a year miss for injuries extends to year uh, to five years? 17 missed, automatic triggered by the team, uh, to various more. Uh, it has to be an injury in the last year of the contract that causes them to miss the whole season uh, because they are on the physically unable to perform list or non-football injury list. So if you are on the PUP or the NFI list in the last year of your contract, your contract holds, so it adds an extra year onto the contract. If it happens in the first year of the deal, doesn't mean anything. So now, you might be a restricted free agent versus an unrestricted free agent, but just in terms of the contract rolling over, it has to be the last year of the contract for it to happen. Um, but in terms of a four-year rookie maintaining unrestricted free agent status, that PUP or that NFI... Um, they they have to be able to play more than six games in order to get that accrued season. Reese Kidd, hey, uh, would love to hear your thoughts on the McLaurin contract. So I don't have enough information on it yet to really get in in depth on it. I think based on where the numbers went this year. Um, you know, I did a uh, interview. I think it was with Nikki. We talked about that. Um, you know, pretty much my thought was he was going to make somewhere in that ballpark. Um, you know, going back to what I mentioned earlier, Washington probably should have. Washington probably should have approached this in February. Um, offered him 20 and see what happened. Um, you know, certainly right after DJ Moore signed, they should have just said, all right, we'll give you 20.5. You know, I think DJ Moore is at 20.6 and seeing if that got a deal done because the, the problem was once they got into that point to where everything just went kind of haywire um you know the the Tyree Kill Adams wasn't haywire the Tyree Kill AJ Brown kind of stuff um once that happened you know I think Washington was at a big disadvantage um but again I don't have all the details so it's kind of hard to really get into it but I, I think the the Basics of it is that Washington waited too long. And if they were more proactive, they probably could have shaved a couple million off the deal. Um, 
But I do think based on what he's done so far and where the team is, it's probably one of those deals that people are going to look at and be like, man, why are we paying this guy 23 a year? I have a feeling um, that's going to be the case. And it's not going to be a reflection on him as a player. I think it's going to be more of a reflection on the organization and the fact that the team just isn't that good. And is there really a reason to be paying $23 million to a player on a team that's not very good? You know, I I, I don't think they... I, I think the answer to that is no. Um but, you know, you, you wait and you see. But uh, when I get more details on it, I'll try to talk more on it. Uh, who wins the AFC South, the Colts or the Titans? That's a good question. Um, so I think when you look at the AFC South right now, I would be surprised if Houston won. I think the team you really have to look at is Jacksonville. Uh, they've clearly upgraded at coach. And then the question just becomes, is Trevor Lawrence the real deal? Now, if Trevor Lawrence is the real deal, you know, you're talking about a, a, a guy that people looked at in the same light as, you know, the, these real, you know, legendary prospect kind of players. So if Trevor Lawrence lives up to that billing, the Jaguars are the team to beat. Now, I look at Jaguars' history, and I, I can't put them there. Uh, I think the Titans are a team trending down. I think the Colts are a team that's just kind of treading water. Um, you know, if I had to choose between those two teams, even with the changes, I think I would probably still lean Tennessee. Um I just think there's certain areas where Tennessee might be a little bit better uh, than Indianapolis. But I, I wouldn't be surprised either way. You know, I, I would consider both very close. I, I would consider both to be like 10-win type teams, I think. But Jacksonville is the team that I think actually has upward potential, um, you know, based on the quarterback mainly. But, uh, you know, you have to wait and see with Jacksonville. You know, that, that's that's a little bit harder to, to go. But I think Tennessee will take a step back from next year. I think Indianapolis is just probably a lateral move. Um, I look at those two teams as pretty even. So, you know, I, I would see. But I if, if I'm an AFC South guy, I'm looking at Jacksonville. And, you know, I, I don't know. Jacksonville either has a chance to be the best team in the AFC South or, you know, top five pick again. So that's just uh, the way that I would look at it. So uh, anyway, I think that does it for me. So um, everybody have a great week and uh, I will talk to you all again soon.